podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What a fantastic goal that is from Derby! You weren't expecting that, were you? Hello and welcome to Steve Bloomer's Washing, the Derby County fan podcast. We're into the home stretch of the 18-19 season and with it we're celebrating six of the best. The Rams have powered back into the playoffs with that ruthless display against Rotherham. So joining me to bask in the glory of only Derby's second six-goal display in our lifetime is Richard Kutcher. Hello. How was your international break, all right? It ended very well. Yeah, nice break, nice break. Uh, went about about to the United States and then back again. Oh, look at you, Globetrotter. And uh, Tom Martin, what are your thoughts on the new theme tune? Yeah, love it. It takes me back to being 14 uh, with a bit of uh, pop punk, a bit of Green Day perhaps uh, in there. Like it, Chris. Good That's stuff. what I was going for. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll have noticed we've got a, a snazzy new theme. Uh, thanks a lot to Rams fan and singer musician Mark Oliver for putting that one together for us with the help of Lee Langley who helped uh, production on that one as well give them a follow on Twitter or check them out online we'll, uh, we'll tweet their details out over the course of this week uh, also coming up in episode 49 we've all had a watch of last week's fans forum some uh, some really good juicy candid detail in there as you'd expect from uh, owner Mel Morris and Frank Lampard about Derby's overspending the wage structure uh, their passion for the club, and loads more as well. We're going to discuss all the main talking points from that one. And we're also going to step back in time and chat to uh, Rams fan Stuart Forsyth, who has just released a new book on the highs and lows of following the Rams in the 1980s. And Tom, I believe you're on quiz duty this week, are you not? I am indeed. I am indeed. I've got a, uh, a very good who am I for you this week. Shall we do the traditional format? Do you want to fire, fire out a clue for us to uh, percolate on? Yeah, my first clue this week as I'm doing the who am I. Um, I was born on the 26th of October, not far from your birthday, sir, 1967. And that, that is literally my birthday. So yeah. There well, you my, go, 1967. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I knew you were in October. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll come back to that one at the end of the podcast, Richard and I doing battle in the uh, Derby County trivia stakes. Um, but you know exactly where we're going to start this podcast, though. Derby County 6, Rotherham 1. The last time the Rams scored 6 in the league, the prodigy were number 1 with Firestarter. The UK still used dial-up internet, and Jim Smith was Derby County manager. And we all know what happened that season, don't we? Just Prom- just, just saying. Promotion. Yeah. So. Well, we finished second, but that's not going to happen. Yeah, but. promotion there, officially. <laughs> Either way, I don't care. If we score six goals like that and get promoted, what a season. I was there at the Tranmere game in uh, 96. I remember it well. What a performance, Richard. Yeah. At the weekend, I mean. Yeah, and, against, <laughs> and in 96. Um, yeah, brilliant performance. Just things clicked, right? We were clinical in front of goal. We haven't been clinical for quite a while. I guess we'll come on to it, but Mason Mount had a massive impact. Moving the ball quicker. It seemed like we were getting the ball out. Even people like Jaden Bogle were playing a lot quicker, not taking too many touches. And when we do play like that, teams will struggle to contain us. We were bombing down the wings on both flanks. Bogle and Malone putting decent balls in. In fact, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe both of them assisted something uh, this weekend. And I think the the interchange from the Derby players, uh, from defence, the fullbacks into midfield, and then back out wide again was fantastic. And it's a complete contrast to what we were saying earlier on in this month when we came back from Aston Villa, saying how slow Derby were playing. Um, yes, we were playing Rotherham, who... Let's let's be honest. We're, we're no great shakes, but at the same time, Derby put them to the sword ruthlessly. Brilliant. It was a devastating attacking performance, though, wasn't it? Um, regardless of how poor the opposition were, seven different players involved in the goals, which would be a huge confidence boost ahead of that uh, that really tricky trip we got to Brentford next in the league. Yeah, massive confidence boost. And it's interesting you mentioned the amount of players uh, involved there. And um, what I did see is that thanks to Waghorn's hat-trick at the weekend, um, we've now got three players who've scored 10 or more goals this season uh, in all competitions in, uh, I believe it's Waghorn, Marriott and uh, Wilson. And uh, Mount Wilson can't did. be far behind there. Yeah. And so I think, I think Mount's on seven in all comps um, or possibly one or two less. But yeah, I take your point, definitely. We haven't had that prolific, uh, you know, um, Pookie or like a Billy Sharp sort of a player have we this season but as long as the goals come from somewhere I guess that's the most important thing really yeah we've had players go on runs haven't we on different parts of the season so Mason Mount in the first couple of months of the season was kind of scoring every game then Jack Marriott had a great run then Wilson had his great run and we've been struggling there and obviously Waghorn's been chipping in throughout the season and obviously a hat-trick this week looks pretty good for his stats I think when you've got those threats all over the pitch and that was probably the first time Lampard's put those six players on the pitch, just the six attacking players, the midfielders and attackers on the pitch at the same time, we are going to be hard to contain. But we've also seen performances like that earlier in the season and, and teams have worked us out again. So let's hope everyone stays fit and we could put that team together a few times. I read uh, I read on Twitter yesterday that it's the first time since Christmas uh, that we've had a, a basically a fully fit squad to choose from. There's not been a doubt or niggle uh, and Lampard's actually been able to choose the 11 that he, he wants to choose and thinks is thinks it's best to win their game. Talking about being uh, being full strength, having our best players available, Derby had only won 10 points in the nine games that Mason Mount missed during his injury spell. Um, we've talked before in, a, in previous podcasts about how he wasn't quite hitting the levels that we know he can hit after Christmas, but there's no doubt he was back to his best and basically running the show at the weekend, wasn't he, Richard? Yeah, I think so. And I think the other stat was, I think we scored seven goals in those nine games as well. And we scored six in the game that he returns in. Um, obviously, that's not going to happen every week. But yeah, from he was definitely moving the ball much quicker. He was definitely that link man. He, we've been missing that quality between the deep midfield and the attacking midfield and the strikers. And the, in the build-up to most of the goals, you saw Mount get it in the middle and get it wide quickly, as Tom mentioned. You know, he gets out with his feet. He encourages other players to play quickly as well. I mentioned Bogle as well, Wilson, Lawrence. He just knits everything together. The players want to get the ball out and move it about a lot quicker because they know they've got someone that creative in the middle. And he anticipates quite well, I think. The first goal, for example... The way he took that ball in from at Holmes or Bowler I can't quite remember, but he's looking to spin on that Rotherham defender as soon as it gets near him. I mean, probably a pretty soft penalty in the end, really. It was like the slightest of touches. Does but he, he dive? Well, I think he, he bought it and the Rotherham defender was selling it. He, and- <laughs> he, he def- it was definitely contact, but he went down a step later. So yeah. he didn't he wasn't brought down, he was contacted and then he went down. I yeah. think if Derby had that sort of penalty given against them. I wouldn't have been too happy. I'd be um, I'd be disappointed. I think it was soft. It comes under the soft category. The defender shouldn't have made contact. Mount, it definitely wasn't enough contact to bring him down. So whether or not you interpret that should be a penalty or not a penalty. The, the law does state it's a, a, a trip or an attempt to trip and or an impeding and an attempt to impede. So strictly speaking, under the 
the eyes of the law, that is a penalty. Uh, Mount does him for the for the quality of the turn that he has uh, there, and he gets away from him, and he's he's just not going to get to the ball, and that's why he goes down. I thought the other thing that was really impressive about the performance was, for the first time in quite a while, we saw them winning the ball high up the pitch again. A couple of the goals in the second half particularly, we won the ball. I think Lawrence made a good tackle with one. Mount was making interceptions in the middle of the park. They actually do, He Mount was a big part of that effort in the first few months of the season when we were pressing high up the pitch and intercepting high up the pitch. Mount seems to read that pressing really well and read where the ball's going next really well and sets the tone for the rest of the midfield. It wasn't completely plain sailing in the first half though, even though Derby were 3-0 up at half time. Uh, Rotherham did get in a couple of times, he had that low ball that was fizzed across the face. When the Rotherham player had that pretty nasty looking collision with the post, uh, the chance cleared off the line where goal line tech got involved and even that free kick that Roos had to turn around the post. Um, but it was well and truly game over at 4-0 in the, in, at the start of the second half, wasn't it? It's exactly what you want. I mean, I was messaging you guys and saying, yeah, we're winning, but there's there's been a few chances. I thought Newman looked fairly lively for uh, Rotherham up top. Um, <clears throat> but actually, as soon as Derby went in at half-time 3-0, you're like, okay, this is a good solid lead, but they've had a few chances. Come out in the first five minutes of the, of the second half, score a fourth. Game set and match for me. Uh, even though Rotherham got back into it quickly, it was always going to be be one way traffic after that. You mentioned before, Tom, the uh, contribution of the fullbacks, who we have criticised a few times, probably more than other players in this team. Um, great contributions at the weekend. They were both among the seven players who were involved in the goals. Uh, Malone just popped up a lovely little ball for Bradley Johnson for the second, didn't he? And then, well, it's actually Holmes who crossed in the uh, uh, who put the cross in for Waghorn, but then it was Bogle's pullback for number four, wasn't it? It was the, uh, yeah, so Bogle was involved for the the Holmes cross and obviously um, uh, gave the ball down the line to, to Holmes when he put the ball into the box. Uh, the Malone cross was fantastic, right into Johnson's head. The Rotherham defence doesn't quite push up in time. Uh, and Johnson's head is actually brilliant as well. Absolute um, bullet header, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Gave the keeper no chance. Old, old school stuff. And, and Bogle looked really lively all the way through the game. He, We know he's got that ability. We saw that earlier in the season. Um, he had a bit of a tail off, but um, he's really come back strong in the last few weeks. And arguably has been one of Derby's best players in the last four or five games. It was great to see uh, a couple of headed goals as well. And I think Lampard mentioned it in his post-match interview that they've been working on trying to get more balls in the box and getting better quality in the box to, to, to have headed attempts because they've got good players. Johnson is a good header of the ball. He scored a couple of headed goals for us. Waghorn scored a few headed goals for us now this season. Marriott scored headed goals for us. So it's something we need to make the most of because it's not... If you look at our team on paper, you wouldn't think it's a team with you know, kind of aerial threat all over it, particularly in, in the top third. But if that's something they've worked on the training ground it's paid off at the weekend, then that's, that's a good sign. Waghorn's a complete beast. I mean, he, yeah. he should be winning all sorts up there. And his header from uh, Holmes' cross was fantastic. He just sort of delayed it slightly and just nodded it into the bottom corner. Uh, I liked that bounce. he... Uh... Effectively celebrated that goal by bench pressing Dwayne Holmes. That yeah. was uh, <laughs> quite enjoyable to see. There's been some good stuff on Twitter on that as well. We should really give uh, Waggy some credit, shouldn't we? I mean, seven games without a goal before the Rotherham game, but uh, 11 in all competitions now, one more than Jack Marriott. There's been a lot of chat online and offline from ourselves about his best position. Uh, some argue that with his work rate and his physicality, that he's best in the wide position of the three, but. It's always been straight through the middle for me, really. I know it's easy to say when he scores a hat-trick, but I think his all-round game is good enough if you give him the service. He, you know, he scored a couple of decent goals on the, on the deck against Hull. Um, he's good in the air. And I just think our other attacking players are better in the wide areas of the three than, than he is. I'm just uh, quite surprised that 
it's taken Frank this long to play him through the middle more regularly. Yeah, he can do a job. He can, The problem for any player like that is they can do a job for you out wide and they can be effective. And I think when he had his first run in the team on the wide right, he got quite a few goals in arriving at that back post and was getting in the box. So you do want that from wide players and it's often your more traditional wingers don't get in the box and don't hit that back post for goal-scoring opportunities. So that was a useful weapon. But when he's on form and when he's confident and when he's got that kind of service, he's going to get goals. I know two of them are penalties, but he's going to get goals. And I feel like if he had played in that team up front all season with the quality around him, which hasn't always been there, of course, he probably would have been on 20 goals. He's a proven goal scorer in this division. Um, and it's good now that him and Marriott hopefully can push each other for that, that number nine shirt. I just wanted to ask you, earlier about which one of the six you thought was best but it's a bit of a moot point really because two were penalties two were headers one was a tap in and clearly the best by a mile was Mason Mount's goal wasn't it as a um, team goal do you think as yeah I, I think so I mean you look at the build up great great little bit of build up and then um, Bogle's pullback and the finish from Mount very reminiscent of his uh, the goal he scored against Norwich away wasn't it I love the way he really gets his body over the ball when he hits those shots low into the far corner. It's uh, probably a deceptively difficult thing to pull off, isn't it? It's quite easy to shank it or, or sky it in that position. Yeah, he finished it brilliantly and it's 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 something the keeper isn't going to save because he's coming in at, a, at an angle and he keeps it hard and low into the bottom corner. As you say, just like the Norwich goal, uh, he scored way back in December, and it's it's really impressive technique to see from him. Um, I actually do quite like the um, I did quite like the the Waghorn what, second goal, the uh, the header. I think the ball in from Holmes is absolutely fantastic, and um, the way that Waghorn attacks that ball as well, and just managed to guide it beyond the defender and then also beyond the goalkeeper. Because if he hits that full on, and whether he's meant that or whether his time just jumped us perfectly, but if he hits that full on, I think it's either going to hit the defender and blocked away, or it's going to go straight down the goalkeeper's throat. What he actually does, he sort glances it into the corner using the pace of the ball and that's all down to Holmes's, Holmes's cross. So a different I, sort of header like to Johnson's where Johnson had to do the work on that header didn't he whereas Waghorn just had to guide what was already a very good cross. Yeah I mean and I did enjoy you know, Johnson's goal was a classic uh, a classic sort of number nine sort of header isn't it Alan Shearer used yeah, to Andy Carroll-esque yeah. wasn't it? Yeah just a beast of a header and obviously unfortunately Bradley Johnson's not a number nine but uh, but certainly that sort of style or that sort of uh, skill that you see and um, yeah I thought we scored some good goals and I thought we created a lot yesterday. Kutch, um, Mason Mount and Waghorn are going to get applauded from this game. Waghorn for his first hat-trick in English football and Mason Mount for setting up two and scoring one on his first uh, game back after 10 games out. But Dwayne Holmes again was pulling strings, wasn't he? Uh, scored one, made one. I think I'm, I'm going to put it out there. I think he's pretty much my favourite player in this current squad. Just the, the way watching him play... When Dwayne Holmes is at full tilt, he's an absolute joy to watch, isn't he? I don't think there's a better player to watch when he's on form and he's enjoying himself and it's a nice nice sunny day, green grass, dry track. Holmes is he's so... he just We've said it before, he just glides across that pitch and he glides with the ball. He's very aware, his head's always up, he's very aware of the space around him. That's why he can play central or he can play on the wing. I think he's a brilliant little player. Um, I don't know if he counts probably as young player of the season, probably. I think he's 24, so probably oh, not. But Bogle, Bogle, outside yeah. shout for player of the year Tom yeah quite possibly no, I love, I love, I love, played enough. I love Kutch's description of him there makes him sound like a whippet or something like that <laughs> excellent <laughs> horse comes out of trap two brilliantly on the uh... <laughs> but he would probably do brilliant job in trap two <laughs> um, yeah I think Holmes is great isn't he? he he's got a lot of energy and we've talked about his sort of central gravity and quality and stuff before um, and how he how quick he is and how direct he can be when he's running um, with all, the ball of all those players this is a bit random of all those players, I would put Dwayne Holmes in the uh, in the 96, 97 team, I think. 
Do you think? You reckon, think he, you reckon, seems, you reckon he could have done a job in the Premier League? He'd have a lovely old time with Dean Sturridge and co. Yeah, I could see that. Like you've got someone in in there behind, like Lee Carsley. That's what we're maybe missing at the moment, like the real ball break from midfield. But uh, that's interesting. Then... We probably are missing exactly that. We probably are missing a Lee Carsley. Lee yeah. Carsley is probably the missing part of this jigsaw. And yeah. like one chop and Dwayne Holmes, that's like sort of a Twitter meme waiting to happen, isn't it? Basically. <laughs> Um, did you see uh, the tweet of him like uh, saying thanks very much to Scott Malone for letting him be the mascot? Oh, that's so good. Wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, Dwayne Holmes is coming up to about like Malone's hip or something like that as Malone jumps from the free kick. In a follow-up tweet, he also calls Scott Malone a lamppost. Which, uh, <laughs> that's, that's probably quite fair. A bit like our own Chris Parsons. Uh, that's harsh. <laughs> um, the most pleasing part of all this is that all three of us are. Uh, one out of one for our predictions for the last nine games. Yeah, so. pointed that out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think we all. I definitely said a win. We all said a win. I said two 0 Yeah. Yeah, I, I said I said six one. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, very satisfying all in all. Um, don't forget, Steve Bloomer's washing are on all your favourite social channels, unless one of them's like LinkedIn or something, which we're not on. Um, we're on Facebook, on Twitter at Steve Bloomer Pod, and on Instagram. And Steve Bloomer's washing is partnered for the season with Derby Brewing Co., the family-run micro-pub operator in Derby with three venues across the city. In the second half, as I say, we'll be uh, turning back the clock, talking about Derby in the 80s, and we'll be chatting all things to do with the fans' forum from last week. Hi, I'm Paul Pesky-Solido, and you're listening to Steve Bloomer's Washing. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or hit follow on SoundCloud. Now then, Richard, if I said the 1980s to you what's your first thought football wise oh I was going to say Maggie Thatcher or, um, just, or, just, or just generally <laughs> minors um, I'd probably say Peter Taylor or Dean Saunders F- football specials on the train you weren't thinking Derby Hool- hooliganism oh. Hi- hey so disaster good so, so, <laughs> some, 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 nice, some nice cheery ones in there the 1980s was a pretty dark time for Derby and for English football come on you Derby are entirely a- correct it was, <laughs> it was literally an up and down decade for Derby. Uh, promotions, relegations, threats for administration. But it's all been documented in a new book by Rams season ticket holder, Stuart Forsyth, who has just released Derby County, The Turbulent 80s, Week by Week, Volume 1. Uh, I had a chat to him over the weekend to find out his inspiration for the book. And uh, here's what Stuart told us. So Stuart, thanks ever so much for talking to us on the podcast. The book you've written refers to the 80s as a turbulent decade for Derby County. It was certainly a decade which, for, for me personally, and I think of a lot of fans, wasn't as immediately memorable in our history in terms of achievements compared to the Premier League years in the 90s and the glory years in the 70s. But it was certainly eventful, wasn't it? You had two promotions and two relegations. What was it that yeah. made you want to document this period in the Rams' history? Well, it's, I mean, pretty much my age. I mean, I'm nearly 50. I started going to watch the matches in the mid to late 1970s. That was the glory years for Derby. And there's a lot been written about that, but there's been nothing really written about the 1980s in much detail. So I decided it'd be something that'd be interesting, interesting for me. And I thought I'd write it because I thought the other people were interested as well. I intended to do it from memory, but when I started, I realised that that was too much of an undertaking. So, I mean, there's a, there's a real... Lot of a re- lot of research going to. I mean, mainly from programs and, and you know material from from the day, books that have been written by other people. But mainly, main, mainly the the source material is the, is the match day program. So set the scene for us for Derby County 
in the eighties then, because I mean they spent a lot of a lot of that decade in the second tier of English football, um, a brief part of it in the top tier as well, some of it in the third tier of English football. What was it like for you personally? What what are your overriding memories of supporting the club in that period? Well, yeah, I mean, we started off as a club on a, a severe downhill slide. I mean, the, I suppose the good times ended when we lost in the FA Cup semi-final in 1976. It was all downhill from there, um, right the way through to sort of 1984, when Arthur Cox took over, who was a famous manager at the time. And, you know, he a lot of my childhood was spent standing on the pop side watching, watching Derby from there. And, uh, you can't replace those memories, really. And there was um, a lot of that period... Well, the, the early part of that period involved uh, Peter Taylor, didn't it, who was Brian Clough's assistant. But it's fair to say yeah. that the period that he had at the club wasn't really as uh, as glorious and memorable as the uh, as the period that uh, that Brian Clough had himself in the seventies in the late sixties. Well, Taylor came back in the autumn of nineteen eighty two, uh, which caused a massive riff with Brian Clough. I mean, Brian Clough had advised him not to take the Derby job, but he did. Taylor's first season he took over in, in November 1982 when the club were bottom of the second division and basically I think we were something like 10 or 11 12 points adrift of anybody else at the bottom of the league so it was an impossible situation but they, he managed to put together an unbeaten run of 15 games and kept us up on the last day of the season so his first season was a, was a massive success um, and there were high hopes that the club was starting an upward upward trend but unfortunately his second season at the club was a bit of a disaster and we ended up getting relegated so yeah it was a, I mean it was a real up and down period I mean yeah that's summed up in the fact that you've referred to it as being turbulent there I guess yeah. I'm just interested yeah, yeah. to know that that Mel Morris in the fans forum last week he he got a bit of philosophical didn't he and he talks about the meaning of happiness at one point and he talks about <laughs> what it means to, to be happy supporting your football team and that sort of thing I'm interested to know from someone who was there at the time, you know, you, you yeah. experienced all this yourself. How do you, what were the emotions that you experienced at the time? And did you enjoy supporting Derby County in the 80s? Or was it so uh, turbulent that it was just a case of getting through it, really? No, no, I, I loved it. I mean, I think most people who were there at the time would say exactly the same thing. We had two seasons in the third division, which are my fondest memories as a Derby supporter. So I think it makes you a lot more sort of calm and even level-headed about today's team. I mean, pretty much people don't know they're born at the moment I mean the team we've got today who people you know a lot of people would moan about and criticise are, are, are an absolute class above what we had in the 1980s so yeah it's, a, it's just a, a really memorable decade for me and people of my, my generation really and you talked about the um, the time when Derby were in the third tier of English football which seems unthinkable for a lot of members of the current fan base but in the last few weeks, some of Derby's championship rivals have been threatened with extinction. We've seen all yeah. the headlines about Bolton fainting administration, that they're, they're going to be back in the High Court as this podcast goes out, I believe. And in the in the book, you've described how it wasn't so long ago that Derby actually faced a similar prospect themselves, didn't they, in the early 80s? Yeah, it came within hours of extinction in the High Court. We owed... The club owed £1.6 million in 1984, which was a tremendous amount of money at the time, and they were rescued by a combination of Stuart Webb and the Matwell family. Bailed out in the High Court, the unsecured creditors accepted a payoff of 50p in the pound, which basically saved the day, but we were, we were literally hours away from extinction in, in, the, in the spring of 1984. But Derby came through it, obviously, and, and got, that gets us up to the present day, but clearly so much has changed 
since then. Football has undoubtedly has changed beyond recognition since the 80s in the period that you describe in the book. I mean, what I want us to know is, are there any parts of being a football fan that you particularly miss from watching Derby in the 80s? I mean, that was a different stadium. It was several decades ago. But what do you miss from watching football at that time compared to the modern game? Purely personally, I miss terracing. I miss standing up at football. And, and just just for social reasons, really. I mean, it used to be that you could buy a ticket to stand on the terraces and you could stand next to your friends and meet up on the terraces and stand wherever you wanted. The idea now that you have to buy a seat and you, you have to co- you have to almost like coordinate with military precision, you're buying a ticket, you have to buy it at the same time as people to sit next to them. It's a more sterile environment now than it was then. Obviously, that's got its huge benefits as well. I mean, there was there was things in there was a lot of hooliganism in the eighties. There was a lot of racism. Um, there was a lot of sort of negative stereotyping in the eighties as well. So it's it's just a completely different experience now. And the book you've written, it's a uh, it's a three parter, isn't it? So you've yeah. you, you've split the decade into yeah. thirds. Um, so when can we expect the uh, the rest of the the trilogy, as it were? <laughs> In an ideal world around June, but it's, I mean, writing the book is—I mean, I'm, I've, I've got a, I've got a full-time job, so obviously it's difficult to find the time. I mean, the first book is 235 pages, and it took sort of a year to write. So I ambitiously expected the second book to be out middle of this year, but really it's going to be more like nearer to Christmas, I think, because I'm more concerned with getting it right than rushing it. Well, that's it. I mean, I think these things always take longer than you uh, anticipate, don't they? <laughs> Speaking yeah, from. Yeah personal experience but um before we let you go Stuart I just wanted to touch on the present day and uh, you know the, your your thoughts on the current team you're a season ticket holder at Pride Park you've been been going for you know over two decades best part of 25 years on and off you said yeah. yourself uh, you were there for the Rotherham game most recently yeah. do you think we'll make the top six if we play like we did today um, against Rotherham then I would say we, we, we should do there's a lot of good teams up there but if we do finish sixth we've got as good a chance of anybody as anybody in the playoffs so I, I wouldn't like if I've got to put money on it and say we'll finish 6th or 7th there we are hedge my bets <laughs> so maybe maybe not basically you're, you're very maybe, much maybe not. hedging your bets there alright Stuart well thanks so much for talking to us and before you go tell us for any fans who are interested in the book where is the best way for them to uh, get a copy so so it's available on Amazon um on Amazon Prime so it's free delivery um, and it's part one is out now part two middle to end of this year part three next year Hi I'm Curtis Davis and you're listening to Steve Bloomer's Washing The Fans Forum then the second one of these that Derby County have done this season by my reckoning uh, lots of topics covered contracts wages rumours the long term plan scouting and recruitment now there's one argument from perhaps the more cynical Derby fans, Richard, that these events are basically just telling the fans what they want to hear. Um, they're not always that useful, but we've all watched it. Um, did you feel that's the case afterwards? Was it a worthwhile exercise for, for you? I think they have been in the past. I think they have been in the past um, a bit cynical about it. I've been a bit cynical about them, but I think this one and the last few, I think Mel in general has been pretty good at these, and I think he does come across as sincere. He didn't really hold back, I thought, when he was asked about ownership issues. Um, he kind of gave some detail. It was, it was, he referenced all the he referenced all the the stories in the media. He couldn't really not do it, but he talked about it quite openly. And he and he talked about what he meant when he said he's looking for investment. And he said, you know, the one pound thing isn't necessarily 
not true. It's just there are parameters around the what he would ex- accept from a deal which was one pound. So I thought it was I thought it was a worthwhile exercise. I thought Lampard was pretty relaxed. I thought they were all pretty relaxed. I don't think it's an act. I think I think he is still interested in the club. He wouldn't put himself through that kind of evening if he wasn't interested in the club. A few uh, landmark stats that came out of it as well. Um, Mel Morris pointing out that of um, 37 players currently contracted in Derby's squad, 40%, 40 40% of Derby's wages go on players who don't play for us or who have barely featured at all this season, which is a staggering £1.25 million a month. I mean, it's good that Mel Morris is committed to Derby and he's still got fire in his belly, but you do have to say, I mean, presumably it was Morris who like sanctioned these deals, who gave out these contracts... He's clearly pissed off about the amount of money that is being tied up in players that don't play for us. But, I mean, our closeness to financial fair play is partly due to him as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think what was interesting was, he again, he went into good, he went into good detail, which I appreciated. But one question I wish someone had asked um, was he said that he admitted he's made lots of mistakes. No one asked him what the mistakes were. I think those mistakes were obvious. That was the point I was going to make. The mistakes were um, perhaps listening to Steve McLaren when he went Chris Martin's going to be the key figure for us try and get him back from Fulham and then offer him a new contract in the middle of March when Martin then comes back to us having his head having had his head turned I imagine Martin got a better contract in that time and he's he's not done anything whoever he did listen to about George Thorne and they gave George Thorne a new contract um Ikechiania four-year deal for someone who I never really rated and I've never rated uh, as a professional footballer, as a, a high quality one, and I wasn't excited that we paid four million for him. Uh, what about that dislike Golvy Millwall? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was on side. Yeah, granted. <laughs> I also, I also remember watching him in Grimsby in the rain, and he was um, he ran up up and down quite a lot. And then he fell over a few times. Yeah, you'll get that. I mean, I was just going to point out, Richard, that in Morris and the club's defence, there is this forty percent on players that don't play for us, but. Uh, that 40% is on a small concentration of those players, isn't it? It's not as if we've got a dozen players um, who are all clogging up a huge amount of the wage bill. What I mean is is that um, there's probably four or five players, we all know who they are, who are a um, huge drain on the wage bill despite not playing for us. Those probably being Martin, George Thorne, Butterfield, Anya and Nick Blackman. Take those five off the wage bill and I think... You're saving a lot of money, aren't you? This really scary. Sorry, Rich, to butt in there. Um, the really scary thing is he said a cheque of 1.2 million a month. Now, break that down over. Let's let's just say for arguments, like five month, uh, five weeks. You're looking at 200 to 250 grand a week. That's five players you just mentioned there. They want, they want a lot of money. They want 40 grand. I mean, obviously, it's not just them. Players, maybe he's including but, Alex Pierce. Maybe there's a few others included mm-hmm. in there as well. But that, still, it's, of course, they're going to be on thirty, probably grand a week. But I'm being generous, and I'm underestimating the the amounts there. I think like those guys are on more money than we think, and I think Blackman must be on a lot of money um, as well. Sorry. The the problem is with the mistakes that Mel's made. He kind of he kind of doubled up his mistakes. The managerial merry-go-round, the carousel of managers coming out out of our club all quite respected coaches. He's brought in some good names or some well-respected names. You know, Steve McLaren, Paul Clement was in demand. Nigel Pearson was in demand. You know, McLaren twice. Like, these are these are big names who probably demanded good wages themselves. What he made the mistake of doing is doing both things wrong, where he, he would back those managers. So you say about McLaren saying, all right, we've got to get Chris Martin back. We've got to give him a new contract. All right, fine. But then he got rid of the manager which said, said that. So he, he trusted McLaren to do that. 
and shell out that money, that long-term commitment, and then sat McLaren. And he did that with, you know, the reason we've got these overpaid players that don't quite fit into our system anymore, don't quite fit into the philosophy of the club, because they've all been signed by a plethora of different managers over the last four years. So I don't think we need to dwell too many on, on dwell too much on his mistakes, but they are the mistakes he's made. He's kind of, he's doubled down, he's he's backed someone and then sat them three weeks later, which is odd. I think we we talked about it in the last pod, <clears throat> the lack of a revolution in this derby squad. We haven't seen a big outgoing, we've seen a, a tweaking and an addition here and then someone who's like gradually become, has been an important player and then being frozen out. I think Craig Bryson is a perfect example of that. Like so crucial in the uh, clough time then in McLaren's first spell, then got frozen out and was sent on loan to Cardiff, helped them get promoted, then came back in last year, was kind of in and kind of not at the moment uh, this year. And I think it's it's probably about time to say goodbye to, to Craig Bryson, for example. Um, but like, that's an, a classic example where we've had a lot of managerial change and revolutionary changes in, in that area, but the squad has just been tweaked and added to and not really been got rid of. Some quite interesting quotes from... Mel Morris as well when he didn't name him in person but it seemed quite obvious that he did talk about George Thorne in in terms of singling him out he said when he was talking in general terms about uh, the challenges that we faced and the players still on the wage bill he said we've learned a lot of lessons about these issues you have other challenges like players who may have been injured and can't perform at the same level as they could previously but can still play in some shape or form but if you're paying them a championship wage, but having to loan them out to a League One or League Two team, there's no way you're going to be able to get rid of that player. Even if they were a great player, they just can't perform the same. Those are some of the traps you're dealing with. So almost an admission on his part there that um, maybe we did give Thorne a, a, a bumper long-term contract at the wrong time when maybe perhaps his fitness could have improved more. What do you think? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think everyone's a bit scratching their head over as, as to why he got given that contract at that time. I think it was Rao was in charge, was it, when he got given that extended contract? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think my guess on that situation is Mel might have got, and this is a guess, but he might have got carried away with the general the general loving of, of George Fawn, of not just the fans, but the whole club. You know, he's obviously a, a good guy. We all saw what he could do and kind of, I guess if you're clutching at straws, maybe maybe it was decided that rather than go out and gamble on, on a signing that might be really good, let's gamble on a player we've already got. We haven't got to pay a fee, we've just got to give him another contract. But it just kind of makes an already bad position much worse and it, and it passes more pressure on the player as well. In, in his defence though, I mean, Mel has to try and look at things in a glass half full perspective, doesn't he? He has, he, and part of this is, is just bad luck, is... Thorne's injury issues and other players' injury issues. Uh, he has to assume that he's going to be fit and firing at some point. He has to pay a contract for the player that that player should be, you know. And it's those contracts that keep players at the club in the first place. But should you should you pay a player a contract for the player that they should be or the player that they are? I mean, it's not bad luck because he's already had, George Thorne already had the bad luck and he's got a bad injury track record and there was no sign that that was necessarily going to uh, magically improve. Like. It was a bad call. It, it was a judgment call. Of course it was. And maybe we'd all do the same thing. And we can't, you know, I think all of us around the table are actually very grateful to Mel Morris because he has put his money where his mouth is and he and he is committed and he is involved. And there's, there's Mel Morris is a chairman and owner I'd much rather have than probably 20 other owners in, in, in our division. So I don't want to be too harsh on him, but that, that was a bad call on George Fawn. Also a lot of chat, Tom, about uh, or from Lampard and his future. You know, it, it was put to him about the, uh, you know, about what happened with McLaren last time, and that 
he had his head turned and, and then went and scuppered our promotion chances. Someone basically asked him, is the same thing going to happen? Um, and Lampard was pretty straight about it, really. He sort of said, it doesn't change anything I do day to day or that the club do. He seemed to recognise the inevitability that the links will come. Um, but he didn't, from what I from what I heard him say, he didn't really seem in any great desire to jump ship at the moment. And it seems to me that it's more the national media that are desperate for Lampard to manage in the Premier League, more so than Chelsea are, or he is himself. I mean, I saw a tweet, it did make me laugh, like the, the other week, like the, the, the Sun's football Twitter page put out like a graphic of uh, the title, it said at the top, how Chelsea could line up under Lampard. And there's, you know, like Hudson Adoy and and um, and Mount and various and Tamorian in there. It's completely, <laughs> complete nonsense and massively disrespectful to to Lampard and Derby at the same time. And the Chelsea players in that current team. Yeah, and it, it doesn't. The point I'm making is, it just seems to me that there's, you know, the media and the neutrals want Lampard to manage in top flight more than he does or anyone else does. Yeah, but Chris, we're both journalists. We know how it works. The person that wrote that article would be some 21-year-old grad who was a staff writing and filling copy for them. That won't be in the... I doubt that was actually in the newspaper. It's just some bit on a bit online which is going to try and drive some traffic. Also, the media would bloody love Lampard. Of course, the media would love uh, Lampard imagine in the Premier League imagine Chelsea it's a great story look at your Ole Gunnar Solskjaer thing at Manchester United the media love that narrative so we're just we're just going to be a victim to that we can't feel sorry for ourselves I am worried about it I'll be honest because as much as Lampard can say that and I'm sure he means it and he's not doing the McLaren thing I don't think I doubt there's been any real talk of anything serious but Lampard won't know until he gets that phone call if he gets a phone call from from Chelsea saying look, we really need you, we're stuck, we need someone to come in and do a job for us, like, we need you. Lampard will find that so... Even if it's in a bad situation and they've got a transfer ban for two years, it would, it would seem like he shouldn't go there, but that might be the moment in need that Lampard thinks that he can serve. So I think we've got to be a little bit worried about it. Now, I'm actually a Chelsea fan right now because I just want them to keep winning matches. I um, I actually totally disagree. I'm not worried about the Chelsea link at all at the moment. I mean, yes, it will come, and understandably. Um, the same with the Gerrard and uh, link to, to Liverpool. Obviously, Liverpool are flying at the moment, and Sarri's having a bit of a difficult time despite their win against Cardiff. You mentioned Solskjaer as a comparison. He failed at Cardiff, what, three years ago, four years ago? Uh, he went away. Uh, he's been at Mulder. Um, he's been doing great stuff for uh, outside of England and he's come back and he's he's a much improved coach and, uh, and, and first team coach and manager so of course like he's put that experience in and he's learned Lampard's a very level-headed guy he came across there and was like yeah I know it's going to come and let's be honest I'm not going to be at Derby for 20 years but at the moment this is what I'm doing and that's what I, he said. I agree with you Tom I think Lampard seems to be the sort of person who's very aware that he doesn't want to run before he can walk you know I think if he goes there too early and you're right, he probably will get there at some stage. But if he goes there too early, completely bombs, it will have a massive effect on his managerial career. I think he is, totally. I think he is very level-headed. I think he is very sensible and he is very intelligent and he is very aware. But he won't know. We won't. He won't know until he has that phone call from them going, we really need you, we're really stuck, we need you. Like, if he, if he gets that phone call, he'll probably go. Because he has got young... And, you know, Jody Morris knows the young players there. Like, that, that article you mentioned, Chris, is a bit of a joke of an article. But it's got, you know, it's based on something, which is these... Lampard and Morris are very well connected to that academy, particularly Morris. And if they're stuck in a situation where they can't sign players for two years, they're going to have to use the academy. And who better to bring those people through? On the Solskjaer thing, I actually think that works against your point because Solskjaer has done nothing as a manager. He's, he won a couple of titles in, in, in Norway. He was rubbish at Cardiff. Have you done that? 
I've not done that, no. <laughs> well, it's done nothing. Like, you've done nothing in management. Solskjaer's won something. Like... <laughs> no, but, no, but my point is, his only, his only meaningful thing in football management is, get, is getting out Cardiff relegated from the Premier League. And, and Man United still thought that he could do a job. And so why would, why would Chelsea not think Lampard could? I just think if okay, let's be brutally honest about this derby season. Um, there's been some real good points, and yesterday's game was one of the highlights of the season. It, um, <clears throat> but at the same time, there's been some real low points. That that Villa performance, beginning of the month, the the run where we we didn't have shots on target. If Chelsea are going to appoint Frank Lampard, then fair play to them. They're not going to go anywhere just yet. Frank Lampard needs to continue to develop his understanding uh, and continue to work on it. He's been good so far, but he's not been brilliant. Just uh, to wrap up that fans forum chat as well, they uh, they also brought in Stephen Pierce, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the um, CEO who talks about financial fair play, clearly an issue that's quite close to home for, for Derby County at the moment. He said that despite reports in the press, with our accounts from 1718 and our 1819 forecasts, we know we're compliant. But it's difficult because we have to operate so close to the wire to remain competitive. I and mean, do you think this summer and the amount of outgoings that we managed to do, the amount of people we managed to get out of the club dictates how competitive we'll be next season? Assuming we don't go up. No, I, I, don't, I don't think so really because most of those people leaving will be people that haven't been playing anyway. So the, 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 the level of the squad shouldn't, the level of the first team, uh, first 16, 17 players shouldn't go down. Maybe from the current first team, Johnson might leave. I think that's probably it, unless I'm missing someone obvious. I mean, it seems it seems quite clear to me that if we are going to challenge, it there's a good chance it will have to be on a budget, unless we sell an asset, someone like Jaden Bogle, rumours of an eight million bid from Burnley and Brighton earlier in the season, or if we gain more investment. I don't actually. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to stop spending four or five million pound on this centre midfielder who's had a great season in the championship, Butterfield Johnson, for example, in the past. Um, and actually to go and look for those players who have been doing well in the lower leagues. I mean, how many times have you seen uh, people like Brentford, Ollie Watkins, for example, being picked up, Dwayne Holmes at Derby yeah, this Dwayne year? Yeah, is, is the model. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing at all for Derby to, to change their, their recruitment track. If you get it right, as Tom said, Ollie Watkins, Dwayne Holmes, if you get it right, it's a great model because... You and Derby, Brentford have been doing it for a while and they've been very successful. And if you look lower down the leagues, Peterborough have got a great track record of picking players up from the for non-league and then selling them on to championship clubs. Derby don't have to be a selling club. So if you get the recruitment right, we should have first choice of those players if we if we get the scouting right, sorry. So we, we should have first choice of those players who are looking to step up to the championship in terms of who they want to go to, particularly with Frank Lampard. We also won't be under pressure to then sell them on immediately when they have one good season because Derby can hold on to them and, and try and push for promotion. So, if But it's, it is all about the scouting. So Lampard um, gave credit to Joe McLaren, funny enough, Steve McLaren's son, who's still head of our scouting department now, um, in, in his work on identifying homes and identifying and the skill there. The trick is finding four more of them. That's the hard bit. I sincerely hope we don't cash in on Bogle. I said it at the time when he was linked. Um in January to Burnley for the eight million pounds. I, I really hope that we keep hold of our best players. Um, and I think Bogle's got a long, long-term future at the club, and that should be a, in the future a Premier League sort of future. All right. Well, we could talk about this all night, couldn't we? But uh, let's keep it moving. I think we're going to have to wrap this podcast up soon. Um, but Tom, you have got a bit of trivia for Richard and myself. Yep. Just to remind all of you for uh, the first clue, it was I was born 
on Chris's birthday, the 26th of October, 1967. Catch. Paul Simpson. Incorrect. Chris. Robin van der Laan. Incorrect. I played for three clubs in my career, one of which was Watford. Chris. No, it's not John Eustace, is it? He's thinking. Well, I'll, put it, I'll put it out there now. John Eustace, wrong. Uh, Next. Incorrect. You had him last week on the Keep going. club. Mooney. Uh, no, incorrect. Gonna uh, need a first name, come on. Yeah. Tommy Mooney? It was yeah. Tommy Mooney, but it was not him. <laughs> the other club was Notts County, who sold me to Derby for 350000 Catch. Oh, no. No. Come on. Do I have to say it? I'm going to have to hurry you. Paul Trollop. Oh, good guess, but no. Chris. Darren Rack. No. Clue number four. I scored the second goal the last time Derby scored six goals in a game. Chris. Dean Yates. Boom. Yes. Dean Yates. That was such a Napoleon dynamite. <laughs> yes. uh, 74 appearances for Derby County. Scored three goals. Um, that was my next clue. That was only uh, one of the three goals I scored for Derby. Uh, the next one was I played centre-back in the 96-7 uh, promotion season. And then finally, in case we were struggling, uh, I shared the same first name as a top scorer that season. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Is there anything either you want to add? Shout out for Andy Wyman scoring a hat trick for Bristol City, even though they're directly below us on the table. Shout out to the under 18s, nine wins on the trot. Top of the league as well in the under 18s. Yeah, Wyman scored a great hat trick. Um, not for the under 19s, though. Not for the under 19s. One of which was from a Casey Palmer cross. Yeah, Gary Rowett's Derby County there. Well, you say happy City. days, but I think we, we would have preferred Shaffy and I to win that game than, than Bristol City. We would. Big game on a Tuesday night, Middlesbrough, Bristol City. So Derby will definitely be out of the playoffs on Tuesday night, regardless of the result, because uh, we're point clear of both of those, and they've both got better goal difference than us. On that cheery note, we'll be back in a couple of weeks um, after Derby's next batch of games. Richard, thanks for your time. Tara. Tom, thanks as always. Thanks very much. And see you again. Thanks a lot for listening. Mm-hmm.